Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Alan Murray onto Salt Talks. Alan is the CEO of Fortune Media, and he's also the author of several books, including the forthcoming book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. Alan writes a closely read daily newsletter, The Fortune CEO Daily, and co-hosts a weekly podcast called Leadership Next. Prior to joining Fortune in 2015, Alan led the Pew Research Center, and before that, he was at the Wall Street Journal for many years, serving as the Deputy Managing Editor, Executive Editor Online, Washington Bureau Chief, and the author of the Political Capital and Business Columns. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT, and with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview. Uh, John, thank you. So, Alan, we go back a long ways. I'm lying about my age, so I'm not, I'm not going to tell people how far back we go at this point, but uh, I do, and I'm very fond of your writing. I always I always check your byline. Uh, what John left out is the, uh, or maybe put it in there, I think the uh, CEO Daily, uh, which I find fabulous. I read that every morning, so Good. I just want to reemphasize that. The Fortune CEO Daily comes out early morning. If we want our listeners to log into that or get that into their email box, what do they have to do? Let's start there. Then we're going to talk about your career. I, I think you can go to fortune.com backslash newsletters and sign up for it there. It, it, it won't cost you a penny and it's worth everything you pay for it. Uh, it's more than that. It's really good insight into what's going on <laughs> in the you. world. So I, I appreciate you writing it. Um, but let's go. You're a CEO now. Uh, but I want to go back. Uh, you, you told people in past interviews that you've been a journalist since the age of nine. <laughs> so uh, true or false? I'm assuming that's true. And then true. why and how? And, uh, you know, what does it say for people? And I'm a big believer in this. Find your passion, do your passion, live your passion, then you're not working. So so how did that all come together for you, sir? Yeah, it, no, it is true. I Actually, I'm both a journalist and an entrepreneur from age nine. I started walking up and down the street, taking notes on people who had lost their dog or their grandparents were visiting or they had won the swim meet. And I wrote it all up and my poor mother typed it out using a, this is before the day of, you were talking about your age. This is even more revelatory of my age. It was before the day of Xerox machines. And so my mother would type it all out on a, I'd lay it out and she'd type it out on a, using a special carbon paper and had a jelly uh, sheet printing machine. So I put the carbon on the jelly sheet and I could run off 30 copies and I sold them for a nickel a piece. So I so had a we, subscription of, of 30. So we called five that cents. a, so I just going to really date myself and Darcy obviously doesn't know this. We used to call that a ditto in my area. Do you remember the word yeah. ditto? Yeah. You had that, you had that blue gel or it could yes. have been black gel and you yeah. ran it through the machine and there was a crank on it. And that's how yeah. your teacher, when I, when I was in elementary school and we had to take a test, she ran that machine that you're describing because we did not have access oh. to a, 
a copy Same machine. Same thing, so, yeah. Thir- and so you get yeah. 30 copies of the, t- of the test. And exactly sort of, right. And then the yeah. gel would run out and she'd have to replace the gel. So, uh, wow. Okay, so we're really going back and we're, you and I are obviously fossils, which is fine. But, but, but I want to, I want to jump forward for a second. You, 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 you had several j- dream jobs. Okay. You were, uh, at the wall street journal, obviously, uh, the, uh, you know, to me, I think it's the paper of record for American business, if not global business. Uh, but you get this job where you're going to be the CEO of fortune magazine. And just for our viewers and listeners, this is a Henry loose idea. He's at time, he creates time and then life, and he needs to create something related to the business world. So he calls it fortune. Uh, it becomes the magazine of the corporate world. We know the word fortune 500, even the young people know it. Tell us why, tell us why you would move to that position and why you would take a role like that. Well, I, I, you know, when I, again, this is going way back when I was in uh, college, every few months, my father would send me an envelope and it usually had some clippings from fortune magazine in it because he was afraid I was going to fall under the spell of the quasi-communist professors at the school and he needed to keep me on the straight and narrow. So they weren't, they weren't quasi, let's just state it for the record. They were communist professors. I had the same professors. (laughs) So, uh, um, uh, so, you know, I, I had this uh, connection with Microsoft, with uh, Fortune that went way, way, way back. Um, and uh, frankly, I, when I left the Wall Street Journal in 2012, went to run the Pew Research Center, I thought that I was done with media. Uh, uh, but uh, they came after me a couple of years later and said, do you want to be editor in chief of Fortune? I know my, my father would be rolling in his grave to ever think that I would uh, end up in that job. So it sounds like fun. And so I did it. The CEO job is a little bit different. I mean, look, uh, media's had, a, as you know, media's had a very tough 20 years. Um, and magazines, Fortune's been around for 90 years, but magazines over the last 10 years have been a, in a pretty steady downhill decline. And, and the, the company Time Inc., which published 24 magazines, was, was itself headed for, it ended up merging with Meredith, but it was not in a good way when that merger happened. And Meredith quickly decided it wanted to sell off time, fortune, money, and Sports Illustrated. Uh, and for me, this was a uh, this was an effort at salvation. I thought it was an important brand and, and, and that needed to be preserved, but it was going to have to change pretty dramatically in order to be preserved. And it seemed to me a worthy effort to take on the job of, of transforming it so it would last for another 100 years. So let, let's talk about that. I a couple of years back, I visited your office and uh, you had uh, storyboards in a conference room. I'll never forget this. And you were explaining to me your vision for Fortune and how you were going to make this transformation. And you were going to, going to reflect for Fortune what was happening in the world today. Certainly when Fortune was started 90 years ago, we had a different world. Uh, so tell us what's happening in the world today. We're going to get to your book in a second, uh, Tomorrow's Capitalist, which is exactly about the future and where the future is going. But but tell us what changes you thought you needed to make. And of course, they've been resoundingly successful. So what did you see and how did you implement them? Well, and Anthony, when you asked that, I mean, there are the changes that Fortune needed to make to survive. And then there are the changes that Fortune covers 
which are fascinating. Are you asking about the former, or the latter, or both? I'm not both. I'm asking about both. Yeah. I'm asking about both. Well, well, let me do the former first. I mean, uh, Fortune magazine has been around since 1930, but it was very clear by the time we spun out of, of Time, Inc. and Meredith three years ago that it was like all the other magazines of Time, Inc. in a bad way. People just weren't reading magazines. They weren't advertising in magazines. Fortune had a bit of a lifeline because, as you know, we had developed a very robust executive conference business. We had the Fortune Global Forum, the Most Powerful Women's Summit, uh, Brainstorm mm -hmm. Tech. So Tech. we had a profitable side business, uh, but it wasn't enough. And so what was clear to me uh, was that if, if my job was to make sure Fortune was around for another 100 years, I was going to have to figure out other ways of getting information to people beyond a print magazine. And that's what we've been doing. We've we've developed a very robust uh, uh, digital site that includes newsletters and podcasts. And I have a great new editor named Allison Chantel, who came from Business Insider, which, of course, started as a pure play digital product. Um, and, and that's become, you know, bigger than the bigger than the print magazine, certainly in terms of readership and now bigger than the print magazine in terms of revenue as well. Uh, then we, uh, uh, during the pandemic, launched a extension of our conference business for next generation CEOs. We call it Fortune Connect. It's a virtual platform where executives who have a shot at uh, being in the C-suite 10 years from now have an opportunity to network with other people in similar positions in different industries and learn from you know, we have CEOs who come in and talk to them about what they've learned. We'll program virtual events at least once a week. Uh, have about a thousand people on that platform, about 50 uh, good companies who are partnering with, with us in that. So that's been an exciting extension of what we're doing. We see our mission as, as helping make business better. And, and we do that through our journalism, but we also do that through our events. And we do that through things like Fortune Connect, our new uh, learning platform for executives. Fortune cover, the cover of Fortune magazine. So I'm old enough to remember that the cover of Fortune magazine was the pinnacle of somebody's career. Like if you said, oh my God, I have made the cover of Fortune magazine. Um, do you think it holds that special place today that it once did? Uh, not as much, but it's still pretty big. Look, when I, I came to Fortune six years ago as editor, not CEO, the very first issue that I oversaw, print issue that I oversaw, uh, was the most powerful women issue. And Ginny Rometty, the CEO of IBM, yeah. was on the cover. Um, and I remember her staff telling me a, a week or two later that she had had that issue framed and yeah. given it to her mother for her mother's birthday. So, yeah. you know, it, it tells you something about the emotional, like yeah. this was the thing she well, wanted I, her mother to have. And, I think it does, yeah, by the way. I mean, you're being modest. See, I, I thought see, I, I thought I was teeing you up to say, yes, it still does. I see CZ uh, behind you, the founder of Binance, and I'm close to him. And uh, he, he thinks that, that that that's also going to his mom. He thinks that's the greatest thing that ever happened. Yeah, yeah. That he I, made the I, cover I mean, of Forge I, I think it is still, to me, the pinnacle, the top of the pyramid of business success to, to be on the cover of Fortune magazine. 
So, so we're not ready to give up on the print edition. It's, it's uh, uh, certainly not the profit generator that it was, but we've gotten it. We've gotten the print magazine to a break-even basis. We love it. We'd like to keep it around as long as we can because I do think it has a powerful emotional connection. And a lot of the other businesses we built have have been we've been able to build because of that emotional connection. Yeah, well, I I think it is, and I when I when I see your email come into my email box, I know it's you, but I'm also like this is coming from Fortune. I got I got to read this because of the quality of the journalism. Um, I want to switch to your book. Uh, the title of it is Tomorrow's Capitalist: My Search for the Soul of Business. So, who is tomorrow's capitalist? Give me the archetype of who's tomorrow's yeah. capitalist. Yeah, it, you know, this has been an interesting journey for me, uh, and I say it in the book. Uh, I, from the time I was nine years old as a journalist, I never saw my job as changing the world. I always saw it as explaining the world. But over the last decade, in converse, I have a you because of my position, because of the conferences we do, the podcasts I do, I have lots of opportunities to talk to the people who are running large organizations, and. What I noticed over the last decade was the nature of those conversations were changing. They were talking very differently about businesses' responsibility in society. They were thinking very differently about how they did those jobs. And then with time, they also started acting differently. Uh, uh, we, we could go through, you know, over the course of the last five or six years, the examples of CEOs and companies that have either spoken out on public issues or made big commitments to the environment or to diversity and inclusion or to job training efforts that extend beyond their walls. It was just clear to me as a listener and as an observer uh, and as someone who had the opportunity to ask questions about this, that the way they thought about running their businesses was changing. And that's the trend that I try to capture in this book. So, you covered everything. You've covered private equity, hedge funds. You've covered a uh, whole landscape of corporate America. The Fortune 500 is the gold standard of the top 500 companies. Tell us about your discovery and your team's discovery of cryptocurrencies and somebody like CZ being on the cover. And what is your reaction to the world of cryptocurrency, which I would point out to everybody is approximately a $2 trillion market cap. So it's a uh, you know, you could take Amazon and Apple and Microsoft, and of course, they are greater than, larger than the market cap of all of crypto. What's your reaction to cryptocurrencies? Yeah, I, you know, uh, it, it's Bill. I don't think it was originally Bill Gates, but Bill Gates frequently talks about how technology is underestimated, uh, overestimated in the short term, underestimated in the long term. I think crypto and the technology underlying it falls into that category. Uh, Anthony, actually, this gives me a chance to go back a step to the question you were asking about how I see the world right now. I, I, I've covered business for four decades, um, and I can't ever, I, I'm pretty sure there has not been a time that is as interesting and as fertile and as full of change as the moment we're in right now. And there, there are kind of three different revolutions happening simultaneously. One is the technology revolution, and I see crypto as part of that, just changing every business dramatically. One is the purpose revolution that you and I just talked about. The companies are really rethinking why they exist and what their responsibilities to society are. And then the other is uh, forced by the pandemic, the how we work revolution, the what does it mean to 
uh, have hybrid work and versus distributed work and ha- and how do you make all those things work? So I, I think there's so much going on at the moment, but the technology piece has always been critical for us. And I see crypto as just a further extension of that. I don't know that Bitcoin itself or Ethereum or, uh, you know, I can't say that I have heavy investments in, in any of those. I can't say as a journalist, I have heavy investments in anything, Anthony, but, uh, but uh, but I do think that the technology that underlies those will be uh, spread throughout the economy over the course of the next decade or two. And that's why Fortune feels we have to pay very close attention. Well, listen, I, you know, obviously we, we've made a big investment in the space. We believe that. Um, but there's also a lot of uh, fear and uncertainty and doubt. Uh, you're uh, from an older business. You said the business was started in 1930. Uh, there's somebody that was born in 1930, a guy by the name of Warren Buffett. I, uh, I know you know him personally. Uh, what do you say to older people as they're trying to be tomorrow's capitalists? Do you think that it's better to stay in yesterday's capitalism? Or uh, what, what, what would you say to somebody who's had a career lifetime of success doing things a certain way about our changing world? I think we've reached a moment where most of the successful people in business that I meet have come to understand that disruption is a constant. Um, you know, if you if you were to ask, uh, I don't know, Jamie Dimon or Mary Barra, who is your fiercest, who is your most dangerous competitor? I mean, if you ask the head of GM or the uh, the head of J.P. Morgan 20 years ago, who is your fiercest competitor? They probably would have given you a predictable answer. It's Ford or it's uh, 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 Bank of America or whatever. Uh, If you ask that question today, and I do, I have the opportunity to ask that question fairly frequently, you'll get a, a much more interesting answer, which is it's not the obvious choice, the other company that's doing what we're doing. It's it's the technology out there or the startup that has the potential to disrupt everyone. I mean, you know, think of how many sectors of the economy uh, uh, in which you have CEOs who are watching Amazon with a wary eye and saying, what is that company going to do to me? Uh, right. And and uh, and so I think I think any CEO worth their salt. I can't speak for Warren Buffett, um, but I think any CEO today worth their salt understands that you can't afford to ignore a, a big uh, technology trend like crypto because it can uh, come back and bite you and threaten your existence in surprisingly rapid order. I'm going to ask it a different way, and then I'm going to turn the questions over to John Darcy. And let me explain why I'm turning them over to John Darcy. He reaches the right demographic, Alan Murray. Okay? <laughs> All right. If we bring John Darcy in with his Hollywood smile and his matinee good looks, we get more viewers and listeners. So I have to turn it over to him in a second. But I want to I want to ask it a different way. Uh, you meet a lot of entrepreneurs. You meet a lot of seasoned corporate CEOs. You meet a lot of startup people. It's like a Simon Cowell sort of a question. OK, there's an X factor that people have, that you know, is going to make them successful. What is it, sir? I think in today's economy, gets back to the earlier question, it's the ability to see around corners. Uh, if, there, if we've learned anything in the last two years, it's that predictions uh, of the future aren't worth much. 
you know, no, nobody knew we were going to get hit with a pandemic. Nobody knew we were going to end up with eight and a half percent inflation in 2022. Uh, 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 no one knew that the it would all be disrupted by the George Floyd killing. Um, uh, we live in a in what's the phrase VUCA, uh, a volatile, uncertain, complex world. And things are coming at you from different directions all the time. And I think to be successful in this environment, you have to be listening. You have to be paying attention. You have to have a degree of humility and you have to have good peripheral vision so that you see the stuff coming your way before it hits you in the face. What about luck and providence, though? I mean, we both see that, too, don't we? I mean, certain things break a certain way and someone ends up doing well. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm always reminded of that. I mean, I, I, I really feel I've worked super hard, sir, but I feel like some of the stuff that's happened to me is providential. You know, I, I, I get a break when I need one, so to speak. Um, or do you think none of that comes into play? You know, I, I, I no, often I, I, wonder well, how luck. much of it is, you know, yeah, I put myself out there, but, you know, and you make your own luck, so to speak. But certain things happen a certain way. You know, I heard Elon Musk speak once and I really admired what he said. He said, you know, if I didn't get that grant or that approval from NASA, I probably would have had to shut down SpaceX. Look at SpaceX today, but it was touch and go there for him. Oh, luck is a big factor in life and a big factor in business. But, you know, tomorrow's capitalist is about companies that are that are doing what I'm trying to do with fortune. It's like, how do we how do we build a company that's going to be around 100 for 100 years? Luck won't carry you that far. Right. No question. Know? Uh, so I, I think that's the difference. Anybody can be lucky for a while, right. but to build great companies uh, re- requires uh, requires skill over time. All right, I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. He's got questions for you, Alan. Go ahead, Mr. Dorsey. All right, I'm going to dig into a couple of, I think, case studies or recent examples that I think are an interesting way to look through the lens of your book. Uh, and one of them involves Disney, obviously. Yeah. Uh, they've been at the center of a firestorm. Initially, CEO Bob Chapek uh, wasn't outspoken enough in the eyes of a lot of his employees, a lot of people in Florida uh, around the don't say gay bill, the so-called don't say gay bill. Um, and so he faced a lot of backlash for not being outspoken enough. And then suddenly he speaks out about it. Uh, and the governor of Florida you know, pulls the rug out from under Disney in their special district at Reedy Creek. Um, which is now, you know, mired in, in legal issues about whether they're going to be able to follow through with, uh, you know, basically pulling that special district uh, distinction off of Reedy Creek. But how do you look at that situation and evaluate whether, you know, it's, it's a good thing for a CEO to come out and take a stand on something long term? Do you think, you know, CEOs are, are viewing that as something maybe we should stay quiet around social issues? Or do you think CEOs are, are maybe taking the opposite stance? It, it, it's such a rich issue, and there's so much we don't yet know about it. But look, what what Bob Chappick did, which is initially in the first couple of weeks, which is say this is a hornet's nest, and I don't want to go anywhere near it, so I'm going to hide my hide under my desk and keep my mouth shut, is what every CEO and I know this as a journalist, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, every CEO would have done. That was the, I, and the and the reason I know it is because, look, I was a journalist. I was on Anthony, you know, I was I had my a show on CNBC 
where I was trying to get CEOs to come on and talk about controversial uh, social issues. And they said, no way. If it doesn't directly affect my bottom line, I'm not talking about it. You know, the, the kinds of things we've seen in recent years, they just wouldn't do it. So what Chappick did was old school, true to the book, keep your mouth shut. His employees rebelled. And, and you know, one of the things, one of the underlying forces that I talk about in Tomorrow's Capitalist is employees just have way more power today than they did 50 years ago. Let me give you a fact. And, and I apologize, John, for, for uh, doing this, a slightly academic lecture here. But if, like you look at, if you look at the balance sheets of Fortune 500 companies and you do the exercise 50 years ago in 1970, what you would see is that more than 80% of the value on the balance sheet was physical stuff. It was plant, it was equipment, it was oil in the ground, it was inventory on the shelves, all supported by financial capital. So it made sense that you paid most attention to the return on financial capital, because if you didn't have the stuff, you didn't have the power. If you do the same exercise today, look at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500 companies, more than 85% of the value is intangibles. It's intellectual property, it's software code, it's uh, it's brand value. It's all things that have much less to do with physical stuff, much more to do with human beings, with your employees, with your customers, with the emotional tie you have to those people. So business over the course of a half a century has become far more human focused. And you, and you don't have the option, and this is part of what's going on in the Great Resignation, of just ignoring your employees. So when the creatives of Disney rose up and said, you got to say something because this is offensive to us, Chappick found that he couldn't just sit back and keep quiet. He couldn't hide under his desk. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let him. Uh, now, the flip side of that is the governor of Florida is also a pretty important stakeholder to Disney, and the legislature is too. And so, so when Chappick finally bowed to pressure from employees, he got you know, attacked by the governor and the legislature. And now he has a uh, his his tax status is at risk. Now, you could say the lesson from that is to go back to where companies were 15 years ago and hide under the desk. I don't think that's really an option. I think the lesson of that is that your employees are critical stakeholders. Those legislatures, slators are critical stakeholders. And Chappick should have been spending time long before the crisis hit shoring up relations with both so that he had the trust in reserve to handle what is clearly a very difficult situation. Uh, right. So we'll see. I mean, ultimately, that's not my choice to judge. That's the Disney's Disney board's choice. But I'd be curious what you all think. But I, I, I would not be at all surprised if uh, Bob Chappick is gone within the next year. Right. And most of the economic analysis around outcome believe that those costs are going to be passed on to Florida taxpayers. I mean, that, that's the astonishing thing about sort of, uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to make this political, but Ron DeSantis in a lot of ways is imitating the guy he hopes to replace as the leader of the Republican Party, this heavy handedness uh, in a party that, you know, previously considered itself limited government, small government, stay out of the way of business, you know, be, be light touch in terms of how you deal with businesses. Now they're, you know, holding uh, as part of these culture wars, they're holding things over corporations that don't do things culturally and socially right. the way they perceive them. Do you think that's going to be a trend whereby 
Republican leaders that are looking to, you know, climb that mantle as a leader of their party are going to imitate Trump and sort of the, the heavy handedness that he. Oh, yeah, I think business look, leaders? look, one of the things driving this change among business is the fact that they've woken up really starting around 2016 to discover themselves in a world where the political system has left them on the one. You know, 2016 was a really interesting year, right? That was the year of the Brexit vote. And every business leader in Europe is saying, holy crap, what just happened there? I mean, we told the people of the UK this was going to be bad for them and they didn't believe us. And then in the US, you had this amazing election where on the Republican side, which had traditionally been the party of business, uh, Donald Trump was saying, forget globalization, which is and forget free trade and forget all the things that made these companies great. We're going to take a different direction. And on the Democratic side, you had a, a socialist almost win the nomination. And so business leaders were saying, you know, I literally people were saying to me, what the heck is going on? And if right. we don't figure out how to do our jobs better and to prove ourselves to society better, we're in danger of losing our operating license. So in some ways, this is kind of an existential political moment for business. They 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 have built up trust during the pandemic. They have to continue to build up trust because they aren't going to get the support from the political system that they might have gotten in the past. Yeah, a lot of uh, commentators and business leaders have opined that we're basically now, for a variety of reasons, uh, a lot to do with the pandemic, at the end of globalization, that we're now in an era of sort of uh, nationalism that that's driven by several different factors. And one is just sort of wanting to control our own destiny. Do you think that's the case? And how do you think that'll change the way American business leaders think about running their business? Well, that change has already uh, already started and you can't blame it just on politics. So, you know, it's although politics is part of it. Uh, the, the what what look, I it, think about the business reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I mean, again, I've been watching this for four decades. There's never been anything remotely comparable to that. Hundreds right. of companies voluntarily, not waiting for sanctions, voluntarily pulling their operations or shutting down their operations in Russia because of a geopolitical event. The only thing that's like slightly comparable was what companies did uh, uh, during the uh, to fight apartheid in South Africa. And even that unfolded over a decade or more and was the result of pressure from shareholders. Whereas this happened in 15 days, companies just said, nope, we're out. We're not going to do this anymore. Um, uh, so it's a it, it, it is a very big change in how companies are thinking about this. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Twitter and free speech and uh, the arbitration of truth. I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic that I don't really have a well-formed opinion on. You know, obviously Elon Musk, uh, has agreed in principle to buy Twitter, take it private under the guise that he wants to make it more inclusive, more free speech. But at the same time, you have to regulate free speech in certain ways. And, and not every uh, is uh, not all speech falls under the free speech exemptions within the Constitution. Right. And uh, in the current world with social media, with the Internet, obviously, you have the ability for malign actors to hijack the information superhighway and use it for nefarious purposes. Totally. So how much, you know, as a government, as a corporate CEO, how do you look at how to drive people to the right information, how to combat misinformation? And, you know, how does censorship play into all that? Yeah, look, I'm I, I we've already established I'm a lifelong journalist <laughs> and as a lifelong journalist, I have a commitment to free press. 
uh, a strong commitment to free press and I support, I personally support organizations that defend uh, uh, free speech. But, but it was never my notion that free speech meant that I, as a, say, a, a newspaper editor, which I was earlier in my career, that I could put anything I wanted on my pages without any responsibility for whether it was accurate or damaging or, uh, you know, that I could just put any kind of crap out there that I wanted to and feel totally without responsibility for doing it. I feel the same way about the uh, uh, about the technology platforms. I mean, the, when I was at the Pew Research Center, we did the research showing 50 percent of Americans were getting their news from Facebook. And yet at that time, this was 2015, Facebook was saying, we don't have any responsibility for anything that crosses our uh, platform. We're just a platform. Right. You know, we're just here. And they, that's outrageous to me as an editor uh, who believes in free speech. But to say that you have no responsibility for the quality of information that your algorithms are pushing to your uh, readers is just insane. So free speech, yeah, I'm all for it. But but uh, uncontrolled uh, uh, amplification of inaccurate uh, and damaging information? No way. No way. The, 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 you know, this was a policy mistake. We, the U.S. government passed a policy in the 1990s that basically said the platforms don't have to take responsibility for the information that, uh, that comes across them. I think that was just a huge mistake. Of course, they have to take responsibility for it. Right. Where do you draw that line, though? You know, Elon has basically said he understands the idea that you can't have terroristic threats. You can't have uh, open hate speech on a platform like Twitter. But at the same time, you shouldn't be so hasty to determine, you know, what's truth and what's not truth. You should allow different truths to enter the marketplace, you know, the, the free marketplace of opinion and allow people to make decisions for themselves. Where do you draw that line and how do you, I, do you know, it's the devil's in the details. None of this stuff is easy, right? Elon right. Musk hasn't told him how he would have responded to uh, the the kind of information that was going across social media prior to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Would he allowed it? Would he have allowed it under the name of free speech or stopped it because it was uh, uh, potentially damaging? I don't know. Again, the devil's in the details. Sure, I'm I'm a journalist. I'm for free speech, but I also believe that Twitter has a responsibility for the information it's passing off to people, and and not just passing off; it's amplifying. Right. Remember that it's not just like this is uh, an open square and anybody can post their pamphlet. It's like the pamphlets that are particularly juicy and provocative. We amplify. So one uh, issue that's brought up about the free flow of information and in journalism is uh, the accessibility of certain journalism, right? And there's the idea of an advertisement, uh, advertising-based model, uh, paywalls and paid subscriptions to platforms. I think every platform wrestles with that, both in, term, in terms of their business model, as well as you know, making sure they get their stories in the hands of, of as many people as possible. How did Fortune think about the push-pull between those models? And what do you think the long-term future of journalism is in a way that's healthy for the consumer, but also obviously from a commercial perspective? Well, we have both. Uh, right now, on any given day, you know, uh, uh, half, maybe more than half of our stories will be published in front of the paywall and the rest will be published behind the paywall. So we're doing both. Right. I personally believe that if you want reliable information, you're going to have to pay for it. And I know 
it would be better if, if uh, you know, good information could be free, but it's not. Good information means you have to hire disinterested people who will take the time and do and the legwork to really find out what's going on and not be uh, not be uh, biased or have their their reporting colored by some other side gig they have because they have to make a living. Um, so uh, uh, so good information is like good coffee. You have to pay for it and, and people right. need to get used to that. I think that's uh, uh that's inevitable. The un, the unfortunate thing is that it means not everybody will have access to it. But uh, but I don't think there's any way around the inevitability of it. You know, the problem is the whole advertising model. It kind of made sense in a world. I mean, you go back to when I started in journalism. Uh, if you wanted to, I, 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 this is a horrible way to do it, Anthony. I'm going to be uh, uh, citing my age again, but I think of I think of Leave It to Beaver and. I don't know if you ever watched Leave It to yeah, Beaver. Tr- on. Tr- trust me, Darcy enjoys when you and I are citing our age. Okay, our old, trust me, okay? old people stuff. Well, Leave It to Beaver. You know, it's still you can still get see reruns of it. Ward Cleaver was always sitting at the kitchen table reading the newspaper. I'm not even sure the guy had a job. You know, he was always at the kitchen table reading the newspaper. You realize if you wanted to get any information to the Cleaver family, you had to get it through that newspaper. So that it was a it was, you know, the only conduit to get to them. As soon as you take the newspaper away and put a computer there, there are hundreds of ways to uh, get to them. And it turned out advertisers don't really care about the quality of the journalism. They just care about the quality of the people who are looking at it. And if they can find other ways to, to get people to their, uh, to their message, that they'll use it. So, uh, so advertising is just not a good model for quality information at the end of the day. And, and paid models are inevitable. So switching gears a little bit again, you know, we have a robust uh, conference and events business at SALT. Uh, obviously, Fortune, as we talked about earlier, has a robust events business and you built a community around your in-person events. Obviously, during the pandemic, we all had to adjust to sort of a new normal. But what have you observed uh, in, you know, as we sort of make our way out of the pandemic or at least mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the main part of the pandemic when we were all unvaccinated and having to socially distance fully from each other? But what's been your observation in terms of the appetite of people to get back to in-person work, to get back to in-person events? And how do you think the world has permanently changed around you know, social interaction uh, in the framework of your events? Well, let me separate events and work, okay? Yep. My, my experience in events, we had four live events, executive events last year. We've got, a, I'm going to one next week. Uh, I, you know, you guys have your events. I suspect your experience is the same as ours. People are dying to get back together. I mean, human yeah. beings are social animals. They love it. You know, they, there's just something about Zoom doesn't right, convey the full sensory experience of people interacting with each other in a room. It's just a and, and there's all this pent up energy that gets unleashed. There's there's a magic about it. I mean, the the conferences we did at the end of last year, you couldn't get people out of the dining hall so that the 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 crews could clean up because they were so excited about being together in person for the first time in two years. So there to me, it was just a confirmation of the the social nature of human beings and and our incredible need and desire and affinity for in-person interaction. Uh, now, work, returning to work is a separate question. Uh, it's pretty clear as I walk around Manhattan and look at what's going on in the restaurants and then look at what's going on in the offices that the people of New York have returned to socializing 
but only about 30% of them or only about 30% of the time are they returning to the offices. I think that's a permanent change. I mean, I talked to a lot of CEOs about that, you know, and it's not just their desire to be in the office. It's the flexibility that gives them at home to deal with home situations. It's the ability. For me, it's the commute. I live in Connecticut. Takes me an hour, hour and a half to get into the city. I used to do it 10 times a week, uh, the beginning of every day and the end of every day. Now I've cut it back to two times a week. I come in Tuesday morning, spend the night in the city and go back uh, Wednesday night. It's a huge increase in quality of life. Uh, no one's going to take that back from me. And I think there are a lot of other people who who feel the same way. So we're, I just got off a phone call with uh, 25 CEOs from different companies talking about exactly this topic. And no one quite knows the answer. Everybody's kind of feeling their way in the dark. But I don't know anybody who thinks we're going to go back to anything that remotely resembles what the world uh, looked like uh, before the pandemic, including, by the way, uh, um, Jamie Dimon and David Solomon, who a year ago made some noises suggesting they wanted everybody back five days a week. But I don't think that's the way it's turned out. Right. No. I, I well, you can clearly that. see that John Darcy is in his home office. Yeah, he's and in I'm, Long Island. I'm I'm here slogging away like you, Alan. All Could by yourself, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, there's like three other people in here. I, I put them in the background. <laughs> They're, they're paid people. I put them in the background so it didn't look vacant. <laughs> I, I, this is Wednesday, and I do free lunch on Wednesday, which seems to work pretty well. And a couple of weeks ago, we did free lunch and then free drinks after work, and that works really well. But I'm not sure it's a, it, it, it works for a, as a daily routine. Well, I don't know. The free drinks probably would work really <laughs> well as a daily routine, just so you know. <laughs> All right. Well, Alan, it's been a pleasure having you on again. Hold up the book for us so we can show it off one more time. The book is called Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. I think it's a fascinating book and, and a great book for the Times talking about how corporate leaders are the ones that are driving a lot of the pragmatism that we have in our world today, where you have political extremism, you know, culture wars being fought around every issue, even every non-issue. Uh, and you have business leaders that are stepping into that void and actually becoming a voice of reason. So fascinating book. Thanks for coming on the show again. Last time, apropos to our conversation, last time we we had you on Anthony's podcast was about six years ago. We were in person pre-pandemic, pre-Trump. It was a very different world. Uh, hopefully we'll get to see you again in person soon. Amen. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure, Mr. Scaramucci, Mr. Darcy. I like that, Mr. Darcy. Uh, thank you. Thank you again to Alan Murray of Fortune Magazine. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Alan. Uh, just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website. It's salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And we'd love for you to follow us. Please spread the word about these SALT Talks. We love educating our community around a variety of different issues, including uh, what Alan wrote his great book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, on, uh, which is sort of how business leaders are driving a lot of the conscience that's in our country today. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon. 